Thanks for tuning in to the Thirst for More podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley. Thirst for More podcast was created to help strength and conditioning coaches, personal trainers, fitness enthusiasts, and anyone that loves lifting heavy shit all be connected under one roof. We take deep dives into coaching, programming and training, running gyms, nutrition, and overall improving your knowledge in the field of strength and conditioning. If you're new here, I'm glad you're able to tune in and hope you can just take away one awesome piece of information today to help you along with your journey. If you're a returning supporter, I appreciate you being along for the ride. Now let's dive into today's episode. What's up? Brandon here from Thirst Mark Podcast, thirstgym.com. We are doing our first YouTube live video here, and this is designed for Q&As, training talk, really honestly, anything that you want to have that's strength conditioning, performance related. Uh, we're here to try to help answer some of your questions and just have good quality discussions. So this is the first one. This is something that I wanted to add from the podcast series to where you didn't listen to the initial episode, episode 25, talked about having guests on, doing some solos, and then having the YouTube live option, which will also be streamed to your normal podcast data wherever you like to consume it, whether that be you know Spotify, iTunes, whatever. Um, it should all be there. So this is, again, designed to be some kind of educational-based piece. And the real big thing here is, again, to give you the opportunity to ask questions, but also create good dialogue. And I think that's where we try to grow as a profession is just to talk about different training methodologies and what we do. Now, I will be the first to tell you, there's nobody here for this live stream uh, because, again, I've only done one episode of the new Relativity series. You can call it a season if you want. That's the first more podcast. It's 1 o'clock on a Sunday. College football just kicked off. But this will always be on the first Sunday of every month. So you can catch me again in October. I'm actually going to look to see what that date is. Um, that date is actually going to be October 1st. So October 1st will be the next live stream. So come on over from YouTube and just come here and chat, ask questions. Love to bring you on. But because I suspect this will be taking something that takes a while, excuse me, to grow, um, I'm also going to show up with a presentation-based experience as well, at least for now. Uh, So basically considering this like a lecture-based series, if there's nobody here, that way, one, I've got something to discuss. Two, there's information for you to take from it in case if you can't make it. Uh, But three, I think it ultimately provides just a good amount of education and we can talk about different topics and something that I want to talk about. So the first thing, since nobody's here, we're going to kind of talk about dynamic effort method for athletes. So um, we are going to really here kind of talk about how we're using the dynamic effort method, not only for powerlifters, but I'm really talking about sport athletes more so than anything else. Um, If you happen to be listening to this in the past. So I'd say you're listening to the recording. Please understand if you go to YouTube, my YouTube channel at B Smitley, you'll be able to actually look at the slides that I have here as well, which may help you if you want to further um, educate yourself on this. If you're not, you know, for whatever reason, audio wise isn't doing it for you. You want to be a visual piece. You're a visual learner. That's how I am. This is another option for you. And this will live on YouTube. So it'll be around for a long time. So you can always re-reference it if you want. Um, so yeah, we're gonna talk about the dynamic effort method for athletes. So the first big question here is what is the dynamic effort method? Okay. I think 
we get a lot of things confused here. And so I really just wanted to make sure that we're all working from the same uh, foundational uh, vocabulary here as we get started. So what I've got written down here is the dynamic effort method of training is defined as lifting a submaximal weight with maximal effort. By training to move a submaximal weight with as much velocity as possible, the lifter or the athlete develops greater force output than they would by lifting a heavier load slowly. This increases overall strength. The dynamic effort method is one of three core training models or methods used in the conjugate system, or some of you like to call it the West Side system, just so that we're kind of understand what's going on here, uh, developed a West Side barbell by Louis Simmons. And those other two, in case you're wondering, are the max effort method and the repetition effort method. So we're only talking about dynamic effort method here today, but understanding for the most part, this is about lifting things fast. Things have to look fast, have to be fast. We're trying to develop the fast qualities of lifting. And I think if you're you know, listening to this or understand what's going on, you understand that, okay, well, I'm working with athletes. That probably makes sense. Not too many sports intentionally move slow uh, to be successful. So that's at least the definition of the vocabulary of where we're going to come from today. The next piece here, just the history of the dynamic effort method. You know, where did it come from? How, how did it get started? Where can you use this um, to help you guide what's going on? So, um, Again, I'm going to kind of read here from the slides just a little bit, just so we have some idea of what's going on. But I've got the dynamic effort method is outlined by Zatorsky in his book, Science and Practice of Strength Training. It was originally developed by the Soviets to supplement their max effort workouts uh, as a way to continue the athlete's training during the week without taxing them as much as max effort training. So the first thing that it kind of came around from was managing training load. How can we train more? without actually training more, if that makes sense. So we're doing more work, but we're not actually stressing the body as much. So we're kind of greasing the groove. How can we see performance enhancements without having to beat our, you know, in this case, lifters and athletes down all the time? Is there a way that we can do this? And that's kind of how um, Zatorsky and his book and, and the Soviets determined that they would use that to help their max effort. And then the objective of these workouts, again, is to, to train the athletes to explode, um, exerting maximal force into submaximal weight to train their ability to exert the greatest amount of force possible. So, again, this is about creating the most amount of force, which when you talk about athletes, which is what we're talking about here, force is king. You've got to be able to create force to be explosive, be fast, throw, change direction. Managing forces and creating forces and absorbing forces is all sports is there's obviously skill acquisition involved but if you're talking about being to able to actually perform uh, on the field or on the court or on the pitch even this is incredibly important you got to understand that force is the name of the game when it comes to sports uh, and then the foundation of the training method is you know using uh, sir isaac newton's second law which states that force exerted on the object is directly proportional to its mass and acceleration, or as we like to usually say, force equals mass times acceleration, or F equals MA. So, you know, again, we're talking about athletes for this, but that force is the, you know, the, the key component. <clears throat> Everything has got to drive that number up. So you can do that by, again, looking at this equation. You know, you can write it out, think about it in your head. It's just a very simple one. You've got your mass and your acceleration. You've got to either increase your mass, you've got to increase your acceleration, or you've got to do both to see your force increase. If either one of those decreases, 
The other one either has to increase uh, to make up for it. Otherwise, you'll see a decrease in amount of force, which is the last thing that we want as uh, working with athletes or as being a performance coach. We don't want to see force go down. We want to optimize force. We want force to always go up in terms of our, our training methods and what we're trying to get from the athletes. Okay, so here are the, again, we're going to talk about the history continued just a little bit more. But and I kind of rambled on about this before I even getting ahead of myself. Um, but the goal of the dynamic effort method is to use the submaximal weight that sits in the middle of the spectrum. Okay, it's not stupid light. It's not stupid heavy. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, so we don't want that mass, which would be, you know, the weight that we're using or the weight plus the athlete, however you want to look like it, could just be the athlete um, or load so light that we lose overall force. Again, we talked about that with the equation that if your mass goes down, ideally your acceleration is going to have to go up to make up for that to create more force. Um, but we also don't want to load so heavy that we have to grind or slow our acceleration to move it. And again, this is really important from the athletic perspective because Again, they've got to be able to accelerate usually in what they're doing in sport, whether that be running, whether that be throwing, whether that be swimming, whether that be changing direction. Um, you know, speed and acceleration is incredibly important in sports, as we've kind of alluded to, being able to create that force, generate that force, pass on that force to a moving object like in football, hitting somebody. Um, that's all incredibly important. So the good way to look at this is if you're throwing different objects. Okay. We'll just talk about like you're throwing a baseball. Okay, that that kind of throwing motion. So let's just say the perfect world, our dynamic effort world, our perfect world is a baseball or a softball, something that's got some load to it. You know, it, it's not light. It's light in terms of, you know, lifting weights and stuff. But in terms of throwing, it doesn't feel stupid light, um, but it's also not stupid heavy. It's got just enough weight that we can throw as hard as we want to. And it generally is not going to be affected by the weight. So what I mean by that is let's go heavy spectrum first. Let's say I tried to throw, um, let's just say a shot put. Shot put's a good example. You never would want to do that, right? You think about, you know, that layback position, trying to put, you know, two to three kilos back there and try to throw it. Well, one, you automatically know right now that you're not going to throw it as far as you throw the baseball, right? Okay. So therefore the mass went up and the way that it's going to accelerate, that's going to go down. And then, you know, we would need to calculate those numbers, but hypothetically, let's say it's all the, the, the force is all the same, but probably you're not going to get your forces high because the mass is so big. Your acceleration numbers have to go down so far that you're probably not gonna be able to create as much force. Something's going to give. All right. Um, and then the other example would be like throwing a ping pong ball or even a wiffle ball for that matter. Um, when you go to throw it again, the mass is super, super light, very, very small. And you can move your arm really fast you've got a high amount of acceleration to move that weight or in this case that ball but it's not going to go anywhere because it's too light so therefore the force output's not going to get to where the baseball was you know you would think that hypothetically which i know you can make the argument the way the, the balls are designed but just go with my my uh, analogy here but you would think you would be able to throw that ping pong ball forever especially if you're talking about pro level baseball players but they can't Again, because the mass isn't enough. So there is a perfect spectrum here. So just keep that in mind. That's kind of where we want to work with our loads and where we want uh, our athletes to be in terms of the dynamic effort method. And then obviously, as I've got on the screen here, Louis Simmons, Westside Barbell, 
became acquainted with this idea and this method, um, you know, from reading the books and talking to the Soviets and figuring this out in the early 80s. And he started incorporating it into his training with his powerlifting team and lifters at Westside. Uh, and it's basically been around ever since. Um, you know, Louis obviously used bands and chains and things like that. We'll kind of talk about that here in a minute. But, you know, basically Louis was the one that brought this to the forefront for performance coaches, athletes, and what have you to the United States. But this was around before the United States. Louis Simmons picked it up because Louis, Louis is very honest. If, you know, if you ever got the opportunity to talk to him, that he always credits where he got his stuff from. You know, he, he did not invent, excuse me, the dynamic effort method. He took the principles from the dynamic effort method and just applied it to powerlifting. So he's responsible for that. Yes, but the dynamic effort method as a whole, not so much. Just the way that we think about it when it comes to powerlifting. Okay, so this is kind of where today's conversation comes is how is the dynamic effort method used for training athletes? Okay. So as a former powerlifter, I've used the dynamic effort method. I've loved it. I think it's super underrated for powerlifters and that could be a completely different podcast topic. Um, but I'm really trying to take this more towards athletes with this specific one, because I think it's where the things are muddied a little bit more. I think everybody knows when we're talking about powerlifting, they're talking about box squats and bands and chains and, you know, speed bench, speed deadlift, because those exercises are what the sport competes on. But when we talk about athletes, exercises are a mean to an end. Their goal is to be good at their sport, not necessarily good at speed benching, speed deadlifting and speed squatting or box squatting or anything like that. So here's where we're talking about how is it used in training athletes? So obviously we're trying to move lighter weights quickly. And that's going to increase the force production. It's kind of what we talked about the past couple of slides here. It's all about creating and increasing force production. Athletes generally have to move quickly and create force quickly to excel at their sport. Again, kind of being a dead horse here. But athletes that can perform this task more efficiently, regardless of level, will be more successful physically. Um, but this does not account for skill acquisition, but merely magnifies the skill acquisition. So, you know, we all see those athletes that just have crazy amounts of skill. Uh, I mean, think about people like Bo Jackson, you know, playing multiple sports. That's just somebody that has a knack for skill acquisition. They pick up a task, they run with it. They're incredibly good at it. They're incredibly good decision makers and they make those decisions very quickly. And that's ultimately what sport comes down to is making decisions, the right decisions at the right time, the quickest. And then you give them, and they, you know, assuming they have the skill acquisition to throw a baseball or catch a football or whatever it is, then you pair that with the physical side. Somebody's got the high-end physical side. That's what makes you a crazy threat in terms of athletic performance. You know, Michael Jordan had a crazy amount of skill acquisition, really knew how to play the game, knew the X's and O's, made the right mental decisions, and physically he was just above everybody else, literally the way he could jump and perform everybody else at his era. And, you know, he was just very dominant. So the big thing here that we're reading, we're talking about the dynamic effort method, but also skill acquisition is that we're trying to improve their tasks efficiency, um, regardless of what level they are, you know, whether they are, you know, a pro level player or a high school player, the goal is to increase their force production. And if this can help us do that, 
then we set them up for success physically better. And that may make up for some shortcomings on the skill acquisition side until the skill acquisition gets enough practice, because a lot of times that is just getting quality reps in, you know, it's some the longer somebody's played a sport, generally the better they're going to be because they've got more repetitions. They've had more time to think about that sport and make those mental uh, decisions, you know, they learn from mistakes, uh, they learn from positive reinforcement as well as that negative reinforcement. And, you know, being in those positions lets you be a better athlete because you've been there before and done that. Um, and so obviously the longer you play a sport, the easier it is to have those skill acquisitions than if you don't do it. Okay. I think that's kind of obvious. Uh, so this should be the number one focus for the majority of athletes is increasing force production, max effort, and repetition effort work is still important for the balance of the athlete. So we're not going to say we're going to ignore max effort or repetition effort or whether it's important, but we're just saying that dynamic effort should be the number one focus for the majority of athletes. Um, because that's what we want to focus on. Um, this would be the trait that you see is the most important is creating force rate of force production, as well as, you know, being able to absorb it and change direction and all that kind of stuff. That's what makes them great. Okay. Being able to squat 800 pounds is not going to make them a better baseball player. You know, it, it's just not. You know, there's there's a, a return of diminishing effects at some point. And for every athlete and every sport, that's going to be a little bit different. But it's part of our job to realize: do we need that? So it's not saying that we don't think athletes should get stronger. If an athlete can't goblet squat a 40 pound dumbbell, then yeah, we need to get stronger to be able to increase our force production. But assuming that they've got a good general foundation of strength, the dynamic effort method is going to be the most important of being able to create that force. So you only need so much strength, but you can really never have enough uh, force production or rate of force production. All right. So the next thing here we're going to talk about is dynamic effort training frequency. How often should you do it? So uh, the Soviets figured out that with their athletes and humans, um, even the most athletic athletes that they have, they can only sustain training maximal weights so many times a week before their bodies literally start to degrade, break down, they can't recover. You know, performance starts to actually go the other way. Then, right? The goal is for performance to always get better. And if you start to see a decrease in that, then the big question is why? Are we training too much, too long, too heavy, too frequently? You know, all those are all questions that you have to ask. So um, dynamic effort training in terms of the frequency is something I want to discuss because I do think it's something you can do more than, you know, a lot of max effort based training all the time. Um, so for athletes, this should be done basically every single training session to some degree. Okay. You know, this is definitely my opinion, but because it's easier to recover from, you can do it more frequently. And if you're an athlete, you're probably training anywhere from one to maybe four times a week. Okay. Very few athletes are actually in the weight room doing performance training more than four days a week. Now, if we take football, you know, they might be in the weight room two, three, four days a week. And then they've got some conditioning days and what have you. But again, you're looking at something like a high low, high low model, excuse me, from Charlie Francis to where those those are managed. Again, it kind of falls back to what we're talking about here is being able to manage uh, that workload and the dynamic effort method lets us help do that. But you can still probably do it every single session. Just it doesn't always have to be for the same body parts, right? It doesn't have to be the same movement, same plane. You've got some options there. Um, but I do believe it should be done basically every single training session, unless if there's a reason we're trying to purposely pull back and not do it. 
Um, ideally, again, I think this is two or three times per week for most athletes uh, to be in the weight room focusing on strength conditioning, sports performance-based training. Uh, if you're doing that two or three times a week, doing the dynamic effort method every single time you're in there is not going to be a problem. You know, it, it should just be able to be done. Um, you know, it, there's got to be some accumulation to build athletes up to this, right? But I mean, outside of that, once you accumulate them, you should be able to do it basically every training session. Athletes do have sport practice uh, and a competition schedule to manage on their plate as well. So sometimes only once per week may be realistic. And again, going back to training athletes, we've got to remember their ultimate thing here is competing at their sport. And again, I mean, I kind of just brought this here. They obviously are going to have practices several times a week, much more than they're in the weight room. You know, that could be Monday through Friday. That could be some weekends. Depends on seasonality. Could even be some Sundays. You know, game days on Saturdays for college football that just started up. So, I mean, that all makes complete sense, right? So, I think that's the big thing to make sure you understand is that you've got to be able to manage around all those other stressors so that the athlete can not only – be ready for competition, but be able to handle practices and then also add the training on top of it to be able to recover from everything from top to bottom. So sometimes one day a week, and I know for us, for some of the kids that we get, one day a week is super realistic of what we can try to get out of some of these kids. I mean, they're practicing Monday through Friday, they've got games on Saturdays or you know a couple games in the week, plus practices. If we get them in one day a week, that's honestly usually enough to keep their performance enhancement that we built and for some of them, they may even get better over season by being able to stack things together. And so they've had a long, you know, training career with us, even one day a week, they're still getting better very, very slowly over the course of the season. So by the time sectionals, regionals, whatever comes around, they're actually feeling their best. And that's ultimately our goal, right? Is to be able to excel at the highest level that we can get them at um, so that they can do their job for their team or for their individual event. Um but remember that speed and power residuals are also five days plus or minus three. Okay. So generally speaking, when we're training speed and power as a trait, that trait's going to last for five days plus or minus three. So this is important because again, if we can get twice a weekend, we're not going to have to worry about there being any overlap, right? I mean, you, you spread those days out to Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Friday, that residual, you're always tapping that trait, always tapping it. And you're never going to see it decrease. You're actually probably going to see it increase, which you know is our goal. Coming one day a week, could see a little bit of a drop off. Maybe um, you know that plus or minus three days could happen quite a bit. Um, but you know, chances are you're probably going to be okay, especially if you got a lower training age. As when you have a higher training age, that's going to matter more. But if you've got a higher training age, you probably have the ability to get into the strength conditioning room a little more frequently, or you're working with a performance staff, something like that, to where, you know, you're probably still going to be in the weight room two days a week, uh, regardless. So you're probably going to be okay. Um, but again, remember that the residual is the smallest one that we have in terms of training. And I think once you figure that out, then you're going to be good here. So the next thing is the execution of the dynamic effort training that we're going to be doing. So I think, Again, this is for athletes. So I think many people think this has to be barbell-based work to be effective, but this is far from the truth. Jumps, loaded jumps, various plyometrics, med ball throws, slams, spring variations all yield dynamic effort method responses um, and develop speed and power. So you can get your 
you know, your effort, your dynamic effort method from these things, you don't have to speed squat, bench press, and deadlift. Now, the key here is where, where you're at on that force velocity curve, which we'll have a slide up here in a minute. We'll talk about that here in a second. But the big thing to remember here is that as we do those, we want the loads and things to be in the right area. So you got a super, super springy athlete and they're doing a lot of jumps. You know, they're probably not in that uh, dynamic effort profile that we want. They're probably on a faster end of that spectrum, which we'll have on the curve here in a second. But you could load it with dumbbells, kettlebells, trap bar, and get that to get a dynamic effort response without actually having to, again, deadlift or squat. And same thing with your plyometrics. You know, you can do band-resisted variations to slow things down or speed things up. Um, your throws, excuse me, your throws, your slams, those are all can be done. Just, again, find the right loads. And then same thing with your sprinting. Usually that's more your higher velocities. But, again, if you want to do sled-resisted sprints or push the prowler, you could get it into that range and then you're going to be good and still be training the dynamic effort method. So you can touch this. And to me, dynamic effort method, it's going to talk about like the velocities here in a second. But to me, if you're doing something fast to create speed, you're basically doing dynamic effort training um, in terms of that. So um, hopefully that helps. Now, the goal is that, again, it must be fast, but also allow us to ideally generate maximum force. So, you know, if you're, if you're not generating maximum force, then we're missing the boat here. So, again, I kind of talked about speed. Usually when you're running, you're going to be able to create maximum force because your body's able to continue to move through space, right? You know, you're still having to fight gravity to some extent, but you're literally ripping yourself through the ground to propel yourself forward um, to be able to make progress. And then your mass is the same because that's always your body weight. So keep that in mind. It's not just barbell work. You can sprint, throw, jump, and it's all going to check those boxes. And again, another reason why, from a training frequency perspective, you can do this literally every single day when you train in the facility. So for barbell-based work, though, ideally you'll see 40 to 80% of 1RM loads used with or without accommodating resistance. And again, accommodating resistance is bands or chains and or chains, I should say. You could technically combine them together if you really wanted to. Um, and that accommodating resistance weight needs to be around 15 to 25% of the barbell load that you're going to use. So if we're talking about the squat, we're talking about the bench press, some of the deadlift, that accommodating resistance at the top needs to be in that 15 to 25% range. Because if you add that to those percentages that we talked about here, the 40 to 80, if you add those to those, then you're going to see we fall on that good spectrum. Now, the 80% is so high because it's assuming that you don't use any accommodating resistance. So my suggestion would be once you get past about like 60, 65%, um, you know, that's probably the upper range that I would be in if I were you. If you start going into 70%, I would probably stop using accommodating resistance at that point or very, very little, like maybe 10% or less, just so that the barbell can actually slow down at the top, but generally you're doing compensatory acceleration training, which is essentially the same thing. It's almost just, I don't want to say it's, it's the same thing, but the goal is to being applying as much force on the barbell all the time, regardless whether you have bands or chains on it. But you know, that is true compensatory acceleration training when there's no, um, accommodating resistance on the barbell. 
So 70 to 80%, I would say don't use bands or chains, just use the load. If you're going to use bands and chains, then you need to be in that like 40 to 65% range and then pick your percentage of your, um, of your accommodating resistance that fits nicely with your athlete profile. Um, you know, that can be heavier, that can be light. We can talk about that here in just a little bit. So for speed recommendations, I've got a nice little velocity zone chart here for this. Um, but for athletes, we know that we need triple extension to put or to be the most successful for our athletes, right? So the, the thing that makes them incredibly successful when it comes to running and jumping is there's triple extension. So extension of the hip, the knee, and the ankle. Missing that, you no longer have triple extension, which is okay. But with powerlifting, you know, we don't have triple extension. The, the feet are flat. The ankles never go through, um, you know, extension. So we're only focused on the knee and the hip. Athletes, we've got to have that triple extension, which again, why I really like loaded jumps and different sprints and different med ball throws, broad jumps and things like that. Like I, I think that does a good job of seeing the transfer over to the field court and pitch more so than just doing speed squats. But I do think the speed squats obviously have a high importance. You know, you want violent hip extension, violent hip extension to be able to hit people to run fast to jump higher. Um, so when you're programming barbell movements, again, particularly squat and deadlift, we talked about they were missing that. Um, and against where the, the jumps and the sprints really shine for force output. And on this uh, velocity shown here, or, sorry, velocity zone chart here, um, you can see that we've got different adaptations that come based upon the percentage of the 1RM, assuming we used a barbell-based load. So we've got a couple different options here. You know, obviously, if there's nothing on there, that's going to be your highest velocity, right? Outside of using an assisted training measure. So think like a band-assisted jump or a band-assisted broad jump. You know, those are going to make you move faster than what you can normally do because you're going to jump farther or jump higher. Um, that's going to be basically over, more overspeed type training, which again has its value. It's incredibly important. It's good for peaking. But usually when you're in that zero to 20% range, that's considered starting strength um, that you're kind of training. And that's going to be greater than 1.3 meters per second. Okay. So that's really, really fast. Um, again, this is again, talking about doing sprints with your body weight, um, body weight jumps, things like that. Then, you know, you're seeing some benefit there. Uh, then we've got the next part here. We got speed strength. That's going to be 1.3 to about 1.0 meters per second. That's about your 30 up to about your 50, uh, I'm sorry, 20% up to about your 40% range, give or take. Um, you know, it's, it's maybe 45. It's really going to be fast, but you're going to need some load to slow it down just a little bit. So, you know, think of this as like maybe some really, really light um, weighted jumps or some like band resisted sprints that you're starting, but it's very, very light band tension. Um, you know, you've got a super light weight on the barbell and you're jumping with it. That would all fit this very nicely. And then, you know, We've got kind of our, our middle ground here where we got our speed strength and that's our one to, you kind of see conflicting numbers here, but 0 0.75 meters per second or 0.8 meters per second, but that's your strength speed. That's our classic dynamic effort training. You know, it's got you, again, we talked about the percentages here on the screen. It's basically got that 45 to 65 range, 70, you know, that's perfect, right? We know what that's going to be. So we have ability to measure your, 
uh, speed here, that's awesome. And then the last part that we've got here is uh, the, the heavier side of training. So this is where we're still going to start to see some force, but we're obviously going to have the mass increase so much that the acceleration is really going to start to fall off. Um, and that's going to be your accelerative strength. Some people call that, I like to call this like basically your, your max force. Um, based on force plates, it seems that the, the 0.5 to 0.6 range is going to be where you can get the highest force um, actually put into the ground. That could be, you know, variable depending upon the athletes that you're talking about. But if you look back at the literature with compensatory acceleration training, you're probably going to see that that's where those numbers fall. That's 70 to 80% range, no accommodating resistance. That's kind of what you do, right? So that makes sense with the literature that why we would see that being power. That's what in normal classic NSCA textbooks, that's what you're going to see is power training. And then anything over that is considered absolute strength. You're basically after trying to get stronger, which I think, you know, again, has its, it's, it's important. You got to be so strong to be able to create so much force, but understand that no longer is the barbell moving fast. It's all about how much weight can we get on the barbell uh, to be successful. So understand where you're at in this ranges. But again, for dynamic effort training for athletes, we're really trying to stay on the further side. We're kind of in the middle, but shifted to the left if you're able to see where this uh, able to see the images. So hopefully that kind of helps you there. All right. Now we're going to talk about the force velocity curve. And again, why this is important. We're going to take some of those numbers that we just talked about and basically put them on this curve. So if you're looking, um, you know, if you're looking at a curve or you, you don't know what the force velocity curve is, go back to your, you know, high school, ninth, eighth, ninth, eighth, tenth, whatever math class where you've got your y-axis and your x-axis, where your y-axis is your force, your x-axis is your velocity, um, and basically you're just going to make a nice curve going from the force being really high, where the velocity is slow, and you're just going to draw that down, and then that's going to be your force velocity curve. And depending upon the percentage of the weight that you're lifting, you're always going to fall somewhere on this velocity curve. And so the dynamic effort method is usually right here in the middle. Um, this one, it basically calls it peak power, um, you know, and it's got strength speed at 89%. They kind of use some interchangeable terms. Um, but really the goal here is you can kind of tell that 30 to 80% range for most athletes is where we want to be um, in terms of being able to generate as much force and being doing, 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 excuse me, doing dynamic effort method training. All right, we don't want to touch those really high numbers. We don't want to touch those really low numbers. We want to be somewhere right there in the middle. But understand that you do have to hit the faster spectrum. So that's going to be your sprints, your throws, um, your jumps. Uh, you, you still want to hit that. And then you can still hit your dynamic effort, method, power, whatever you want to truly call that there. And then obviously you still want to be able to touch your maximum strength qualities as well. And then what that does is that shifts the whole curve up and to the right. That's the whole goal. We want to increase the amount of space underneath that curve. And so the more area that's underneath that curve, the better the athlete is going to be. They're going to be able to create more force. They're going to be stronger. They're going to be faster. And that's going to set them up for more success in the long run when it comes to uh, their performance on the field. Then we've got, we need to remember the ultimate goal. So while the dynamic effort method is popular in the powerlifting world, 
the goal with athletes is to improve on field court pitch swimming pool performance more power more speed more movement variability will ultimately equal a better athlete on game day so you've probably heard this analogy a million times there is no squat rack on the football field or on the track and there's that's absolutely 100 correct so we got to remember that this is a means to an end um, we just got to make sure that it's one sustainable two they can recover from everything um, and then three that it's helping that athlete for their particular sport so power is plane specific you know how you develop it does matter to the plane that you create it. So if you want to jump higher and you're always jumping side to side, you at a very young age, you might see there be some transfer, but as the athlete ages and becomes more advanced, that's no longer going to help them jump higher. To jump higher, we've got to train vertically. You know, we got to apply force into the ground, push ourselves up, jump as high as we can. That's where squats would be great. That's where hex bar deadlifts would be great. Um, if you're talking about you're wanting to be able to push somebody out of the way, again, you got to have upper body power pushing horizontally. Only doing vertical pressing will not aid the horizontal pressing. So keep your power plane specific. Look at the needs analysis of your athletes, and that's ultimately going to help you pick your exercise choices. And then everything else kind of falls into place. You've got your speed that we kind of talked about, where the velocity ranges need to be, how fast it needs to move, um, you know, kind of percentages if you're using bar weights. And that can help you, again, dictate where you need to be. So, again, we can still use this quality information, training methods from powerlifters. So, again, I still think, obviously, doing all this stuff is incredibly important. What Louis has passed on is awesome. We definitely want that. Um, but weightlifters also, again, when we talk about the snatch, clean and jerk, also providing us great information on that as well. But we want to use all that to help build and enhance performance, not go into a rabbit hole of working on a perfect squat or a perfect clean. But we understand that, that may look different, and that's entirely okay. So that's just the big thing there to remember. Now, I will say that, you know, I, if I go back here really quick, you'll see that I've got some velocities on here. Um, with the speeds, we use a rep one unit. Um, it's pretty cost effective. It's like three or $400, something like that. Um, and it's a linear transducer, so it's got the little, it's basically a Tendo unit, but a really small unit. Um, I think that works great if you do want to measure these and we have been using it more with our high school kids to make sure that we're in these qualities. So if I'm, if I'm wanting to make sure that they're in the absolute strength, they no longer get to really pick their loads anymore. The unit will help me dictate whether it's heavy enough or not. So usually if we're doing absolute strength, for example, I'm giving them a 0.3 to 0.5. You know, 0.5 is the fastest that it can move. 0.3 is the slowest it can move. As long as your reps are in there, then we're good. And, you know, over the course of the month, we can kind of phase it. We can start closer to that 0.5. And over the course of the month, I want to get closer to that 0.3. I really want to load it up. The athlete thinks that feels heavy. But the thing is, the velocity of the barbell tells me that we can do more. Your body is capable of more. And it's nice if you've got athletes that honestly sandbag it, but it feels heavy. So they quit working, even though you can definitely get more performance method from it. Same thing with the speed aspect, the dynamic effort we're talking about. I really like using this with the bands and the chains with our athletes. If we're doing some kind of dynamic effort based training, that I can control the load based on the velocity of the barbell. And there's, there's other units out there, but just understand that, you know, if you were looking for a way to actually track this, um, then I think that's what I would do if I were you. Um, and I think you'll be in a good spot there. And so programming, I wanted to discuss this as well. We've got um, 
this is what I personally like for a given week of training. Okay, this can go up, this can go down, but you know, generally speaking, this is kind of what we're looking at with our high school athletes and some of our middle school athletes, depends again you know, what time of year and all that kind of stuff. But generally every week we're trying to do this. We're trying to get 25 to 50 ground contacts of vertical jumps. We're trying to get 25 to 50 ground contacts of horizontal jumps. We're trying to get 25 to 50 ground contacts of lateral jumps. So moving side to side. We're sprinting. We're trying to get five, excuse me, to 12 hard efforts per week. But again, this is highly variable depending on distance. So I just try to track this in terms of efforts more so than anything else um, because then you can say, okay, well, we're doing three 25-yard sprints. That's probably going to be good, okay? If they're really good efforts, they're probably going to be good. But if you're doing three 10-yard sprints, probably not enough volume, right? I mean, that's only 30 yards of running. The one person running the 25 yards almost ran as much. So again, you got to kind of look at what you're getting here from your running perspective, but you know, the 12 efforts is a good example. Doing 12 hard 10 yard runs, basically two days a week, six hard runs each time. That's probably going to be good. Okay. As long as they're putting in that effort. And then for your throws, um, your upper plyos, 25 to 30 reps for the week is usually a good spot. Um, and then I think I've got another one here. Yep. And then we got another uh, page here, sort of speed squats for athletes, four to six sets of two to five reps. Um, and I also have on here that we use split squat variations for our speed squats. So that is another really big caveat here is that many athletes are playing on one foot or one leg at a time. You're running, you're usually in the air, one leg's going to land. And then with the gait cycle, the other leg's going to land. So being strong and being fast on two legs is awesome, especially if you're talking about basketball, volleyball, you're jumping off two legs. But you got to remember a lot of sports are also playing on one leg majority of the time when you factor in their running, right? So being able to train that in a unilateral-based uh, method or idea is just as important. So we do like to do this with split squat variations with like the safety bar or a front rack position um, to develop that that speed quality that we're after. And again, four to six sets for most athletes is good because again, if we're doing all of our jumping and stuff, we're doing some of this. And if there's a second day, we're getting eight to 12 sets. If you add that four to six sets up, we're getting eight to 12 sets of two to five reps, which is what Louie and the Soviets were basically doing with their sets and reps. So just keep that in mind. That's kind of where those numbers came from. Um, and then speed deadlifts. Here we got four to eight sets of one to three reps. Um, and again, just like we talked about the speed squats, or the split squats, we also use kickstand options or B-stance, whatever you want to call them, uh, to actually get some unilateral hinging for speed as well. So, you know, don't think that you just got a trap bar deadlift or conventional or sumo. You can definitely use a kickstand variation as well. And then also the weightlifting variations, the so snatch and clean and jerk. Usually we do 12 to 20 total reps in a given session. Um, and it depends on the variation, you know, that you're using and how new the athlete is the movement. That's the big, usually the hardest part is getting athletes to um, get skill acquisition of the movement. That's one that I knock on weightlifting is that, you know, it's so skillfully demanding that by the time you actually get the demanding or done, you could have just jumped and gotten all the performance benefit. I do think there's some case, you know, some merit to that, but I also do like to use the weightlifting variations to teach them that triple extension. And, you know, it, it, it is hard to teach them, but it's not impossible 
you can see benefits from it. We've got several athletes that have done fantastic with it. So, you know, as a, as a semi-private facility, I get to kind of pick and choose who I want to do that. So if you're working with a team, I understand it's a little more difficult. Um, so, you know, we just give it to the athletes that we think that are both mentally and physically ready for it and are quick learners. Uh, and they usually do fine with it. So, you know, I'm not giving it to every single kid. I'm being a little picky. But again, this kind of gives you from a programming perspective how we kind of look at it. And again, counting the total reps in a given session because we do like to use um, a variety of things to teach them. So we do like to use, um, you know, like hang clean high pulls uh, to a hang clean to the front squat, teach them to go down and get the weight, teach them to get the triple extension. Um, but we still get a lot of benefits from that. So, you know, you, it really just depends on what kind of complex you're using. If you are using a complex or if you're just doing a hang or if you're just doing it from the block, so a floor, that all kind of comes into play. But usually if you're in that 12 to 20 total reps for the whole session, that's your working load. I think you'll find that you're going to be in a good spot depending upon what you got going on, but you're probably not going to do too much, but you're also not going to do too low. And that leaves me open for the discussion part um, to where literally, you know, we can talk about this all day, but I do think that when we're looking at the diamond effort method for athletes, I think I covered a lot of the major stuff. Um, so hopefully that helps you. And it does look like uh, Brandon uh, Nelson joined in. What's up, man? Um, he said, what if, you ha- what if you see an athlete two times a week? Do you comply- combine planes of motion for jumps and throws? So I'll put that on the screen so you can see it if you're watching. Um, yeah, so we see a lot of our athletes two times a week. And so usually we try to look at things set up um, linearly and vertically. So um yeah, we like to put our sprints and our vertical jumps together so linear speed and acceleration and our vertical jumps so box jumps hurdle jumps weighted jumps those all are usually together on that day and that's usually the day that we squat so it'll be whether it be a you know a safety bar or a split squat or you know, whatever that squatting variation is that we've chosen um that's what we usually go for that day and then we'll make sure that we've got a lateral um, lunge or something like that in that day. So we're still moving side to side, but that's not our focus, but we're still checking all those boxes. Um, and then on the second day, we usually, that's where we do our, usually our broad jumps. And then we do some kind of horizontal jumping. Um, and then, you know, that can be, you know, lateral hurl hops, lateral bounds, anything like that. And then usually we do, if we're doing any kind of sprinting or throwing, that's where that goes. So if they're baseball, that's where the rotational throw is going to be. If they are not, you know, doing any kind of upper body stuff like that, then they're actually going to do lateral runs or change of direction based work. Uh, think about like basketball, for example, that's where they would do all their hip turns and things like that to move side to side. That's usually where they deadlift. And then usually we do some kind of other single leg variation later on in the, the training day. And that kind of helps us check all the boxes on both days. We're moving side to side both days. We're moving up and down both days. Um, and we can even do upper body power on whatever days that we think is the most important. Um, you know, obviously most sports are still doing some kind of upper body power, but it just depends on what the, the sport is. So um, that's kind of how we do it with two days, two day a week athletes. I think it's worked out really well that we just got to check a lot of boxes and they get that skill acquisition of moving side to side two days versus one. I've seen it work both ways too, where some people literally just have a lateral day and that's all they do is run sideways, move sideways, um, lateral lunge sideways, and then do all their vertical stuff on the other day. Um, I just like, I got a younger population. So I think the more I can get them to move sideways throughout a week, 
the better off they are. Um, but that's just what's worked well for us. Um, so that was an awesome question. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, and it looks like for today, um, that's all I've got on the lecture side of things. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, this will be up on YouTube. So if you want to go back and look at it, you are definitely more than welcome to do so. Um, we should have this also on Spotify and iTunes, as I mentioned. So that's all I've got for today. It like it's been about 47 minutes or so. That's really good. I think that was a good amount of uh, information for you. But at the same time, we're also going to again have this on October 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Um, that's when the next one will be. I've not determined a topic yet, but you know I've got several weeks to do that. I will have that over on Instagram. So again, um, you know, give me a follow on Instagram if you want to keep up with that stuff. Um, again, on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, all that. That's where else is going to be. Um, this again will be on all those places. If you happen to listen in hindsight, you want to look at the slides presentation that will all be on YouTube and you can just go watch it there instead of listen to it if you want all the visual pieces. So again, if you came on, thanks. I really appreciate it. Um, if you're watching this in hindsight, I hope you took something. If you got questions, just let me know in the comment section. I will answer them as soon as I possibly can whenever I see them. Um, and if you're listening on a podcast, just feel free to reach out to me personally and ask a question if you have one. So thanks again. Have a good Sunday. Uh, more football, a lot of college football this week, Purdue loss, which sucks, but you know, it is what it is. Um, we'll see what happens next week against Virginia tech, but again, have a good weekend. It's also labor day too. So have a good labor day weekend. So if you got Monday off, awesome. Enjoy that day as well. Um, and we will see you live next month. Thanks. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Thirst for More Podcast. Make sure you give us a follow on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you like to consume your podcast. You can also check us out on YouTube at The Smitley, where you'll find clips and lots of educational-based materials for strength and conditioning and exercise science. You can also make sure you give me a follow on Instagram at The Smitley or at Team Thirst, which is my gym Instagram page. For any more future updates on episode to come, you can make sure you follow me there. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you at the next episode.